we specialize in die-cast metal miniature gun models that you didn't know you've been looking for, called GOAT guns. Bah! Yes, GOAT. They are the greatest of all time gun models you can display on your desk, buy, build, and collect them. We offer a 90-day return policy if you don't love yours. Start your collection at GOATGUNS.com. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today you'll be hearing part three of three in the case of Katie Major. Small talk sucks, so let's dive in. In last week's episode, we went through Aaron's interview with the detective and all of the new information, which came with several inconsistencies, conflicting statements, and added details which never seemed to be addressed. At the end of the episode, we talked about how just a day after that interview, Vicky was called into the station only to be told that Katie and River's case was being closed, which seems absurd since at that time, Katie's toxicology results still hadn't come in and neither autopsy report had been fully completed. According to Katie's mother, one of the statements that contributed to the closing of her case came from a 12-year-old who reported that they had seen someone walking between the tracks in the days prior to Katie's death. The person had long hair, looked back at them, and kept walking. The witness statement did not include a description of said person other than that they had long hair. There was no mention of the color of the hair nor the clothes the person was wearing. It also didn't mention anything about them carrying a baby, and frankly, the entire statement seems irrelevant considering the fact that he witnessed this in the days prior to her death. It's also worth mentioning that Katie and River disappeared in the darkness of night during an ice storm, not during a time of day where visibility is solid and 12-year-olds are out roaming the road. Regardless, it seems like that 12-year-old's witness statement held more weight than, I don't know, interviewing Katie's friends, family, or even her OBGYN, who was the last doctor she saw. Katie's death was ultimately ruled a suicide, but Rivers was another story. According to Vicky, Rivers' cause of death was labeled as asphyxiation due to drowning, despite there being no fluid in her lungs. How does a child drown while having no fluid in their lungs? When drowning, the fluid in your lungs causes your body to sink. But remember, River was found floating in a pond. A drowned body will sink first, and as the decomposition process begins, gases are released into the body, causing it to float. The temperature of the water can slow down that process, and we know that it had rained ice the night Katie and River died, so we can assume that water was pretty cold. The fact that there was allegedly no water in River's lungs could be a contributing factor as to why her body was found floating. To confirm whether or not it's even possible that River somehow drowned with no water in her lungs, a diatom test could be performed. Diatoms are organisms found in fresh and salt water and according to NCBI, can be tested for in the organs of drowned victims. If the victim aspirated diatom-rich water prior to their death, they should be able to be detected in their organs. According to Justice for Katie, that test has not been done. As for Rivers' manner of death, it was listed as undetermined. At this meeting, investigators told Vicky that there was something else they found in Katie's pockets beside her wedding rings. 
they found a note that included typed font and handwriting about the end of the world conspiracies. One sentence stood out. The Antichrist could be a woman. Captain Alec later told 48 Hours, There were some things that were in that note that made me believe that she was buying into the spiritual warfare that she had going on in her life. When Vicky found out about the note, she was pretty surprised since Katie had never talked about any of the things written on the note, though it did appear to be in her handwriting. Rest assured, we will be coming back to this. Vicky reported on Justice for Katie that the department told her Katie and Rivers' deaths were a murder-suicide, even though Rivers' official cause of death was listed as undetermined. They believed Katie had jumped into the side of the train, killing herself. Then the force of the train threw River into the nearby creek where she drowned. Again, she reportedly had no water in her lungs. There's a wood line between the pond and the tracks, so if they believe she truly died from getting thrown into it by sheer force, you'd also have to believe that she somehow missed essentially everything in between, because she reportedly had no signs of any blunt force injuries. If we believe that River was thrown into the pond where she drowned with no water in her lungs and no sign of blunt force injuries, then we have to ask ourselves, why wasn't Katie's body thrown further away from the tracks? She was found roughly six feet away. And these tracks aren't at ground level. She would have had to have walked up a gravel incline to get beside it, something that would be incredibly difficult to do in the dark at four to five months pregnant during an ice storm while holding an eight-month-old. Vicky was having a hard time believing any of this, and decided that she would figure out what truly happened to her daughter, granddaughter, and future grandson, no matter how long it took. A few days after all of that, Katie's toxicology report was finished. The results were negative for drugs and alcohol. As far as Rivers' toxicology, Vicky has never seen any results, which has led her to believe that none were ordered. It doesn't look like there's a finite answer to that. A week later, on February 11th, Katie's autopsy report was signed by the pathologist. Katie's cause of death, which had yet to be determined, was right atrial contusion and right femoral vessel lacerations, artery and vein, due to blunt force trauma, citing pedestrian versus train. Sheila Wysocki from Without Warning, who viewed Katie's autopsy and crime scene photos, released a video regarding Katie's wounds and noted that Katie had a wound so deep to her leg that it severed her artery and exposed her femur. I looked really hard to try and find a list of any broken bones Katie suffered, and the only mention I heard was on an episode of Nancy Grace. One of her experts mentioned one single broken bone, her leg. She was reportedly killed by a train, and the only broken bone she suffered was her leg? On top of that, she says that Katie had a U-shaped wound to her abdomen, which she described as a perfect flap of skin that had been cut back. She found it hard to imagine that a train could create a wound like that and barely penetrate the superficial fascia, which according to the Cleveland Clinic is one layer of skin away from hitting muscle. I looked up images of the size of various trains, and the only way I could even try to explain this was if Katie's legs were hit with something first, launching her body forward into something like a handle, grazing her abdomen with a lot of force. 
However, in a video on the Justice for Katie Facebook page, they show that it was an Amtrak train, which is a passenger train, that Katie was hit by. It was a very short train and only took five seconds to pass by. Five seconds where she could have been hit and she did not jump in front of it. She was hit by the side of it. I've watched the video countless times and cannot figure out what on the side of it could have hit her. After looking at the photos, Waisaki believes that Katie's wounds were intentional, noting they were very clean cut, and questions the lack of blood at the scene. Photos of the scene were posted on the Justice for Katie page, and it looks nothing like you would expect. With an injury like Katie's, where an artery is severed, you would expect a tremendous amount of blood on the scene, arguably most of her blood volume. However, in a photo of the scene posted to the page, I could see none. While they blocked out the shape of Katie's body, I zoomed in as far as I could and saw nothing on the ground surrounding her. No blood pooling, no spatter, nothing. After walking through the lack of blood at the scene, Waisaki mentioned an issue with Katie's clothing. Even though Katie reportedly had a large U-shaped wound to her abdomen, her jacket nor her hoodie sustained that same damage. I looked at a photo of the jacket she was wearing, and while it's torn just barely at the zipper on the bottom of the jacket, you'd have to be looking for the damage to even notice it. It definitely does not scream that the person wearing it was hit by a train, or that massive damage was done to the abdomen underneath that jacket. Blunt force trauma can cause lacerations to the skin, so that is something to consider, but it's also important to consider the lack of expected injuries. Her mom posted online that even though Katie was reportedly hit by a train, she had no cuts or scrapes from the rocks she would have landed on surrounding the tracks. She says there was no bruising and as we mentioned earlier, no blood. The lack of bruising is interesting because if you're alive when you sustain an injury, your body pumps blood to that area to initiate the healing process, regardless of whether or not your injuries are survivable. If Katie bled to death after being hit by a train, you'd expect at the very least to see some bruising. If we're being honest, though, you'd likely also expect to see massive internal organ damage, spinal injuries, etc. With all of that considered, it is no surprise that Vicky had a hard time sitting with the final results of Katie and River's investigation, so she started one on her own. She gathered documents on documents on documents, took notes, writing down everything she could remember and any tips that she was sent. She essentially put together a whole detective room, determined to find answers. She went to the sheriff's office whenever she got new information, but says that no one would listen to her. 48 Hours actually confronted Detective Olick with a ridiculous stack of papers and said, What I'm holding here, Vicky gave us, it's dozens and dozens of pages of emails that she said that she sent to you during that time, and you didn't answer one of these. Olick's jaw twitched like a lightning bug in a zapper and simply responded, I don't recall. While we're on the topic of the incredible work 48 Hours did for Katie's case, Vicky told them that while she was diving headfirst into her own investigation, Aaron did more weird and arguably creepy shit. Vicky said that whenever they'd put something at Katie and River's graves, it would be destroyed and thrown in the woods, and it looks like items would go missing as well. 48 Hours reports that once Vicky took her concerns to law enforcement, they confronted Aaron, who returned some of the missing items. 
one of which was a toy version of Katie's favorite horse. It was returned damaged. That's not all, though. At one point, a naked old plastic doll with a hole in its stomach was placed at the foot of the cross at the memorial where Katie and River's bodies were found. Vicky believes it was Aaron who put it there. While all of this is enough to shoot flames out of your ears, the most bizarre thing came 10 months after Katie and River's deaths. I shit you not, Aaron filmed a video at his and Katie's home and then put the tape on their grave. Katie and River were not going to be the ones playing it, so you can make your own inferences as to why he might have left it there. In the video, which I will absolutely post a link to in Katie's highlight on my Instagram, Aaron walks up the driveway towards their open garage, then takes a detour around the house, seeming to focus on the plants around its edge. He goes around to the back and then zooms in on the back window that shows the light on in the kitchen. The video jumps to him back at the front door, which he opens and walks inside. He zooms in on a photo of Katie on their wedding day, then goes into the bathroom where he focuses on photos of him and Katie and River, which are propped up on the bathroom sink. He then moves on to the kitchen where you can see a dining room table set for four people, including three chairs and a high chair. On the high chair was a Tupperware, a jar of baby food, and a bib. It was set up as if there was a baby that was getting ready to eat. After that, Aaron zooms in on an angel figurine holding a baby. It's placed in the middle of the kitchen counter, not anywhere you'd expect to run into angel decor. On the figurine was a quote that read, I prayed for this child and the Lord answered my prayer. He gave her to me. Now I dedicate her to the Lord. She will belong to the Lord all her life. Generally a nice quote and maybe it's just me, but it feels really eerie in context. After showing the words written on the angel, he goes to a window and zooms back into the backyard. The backyard he was just in, zooming into the kitchen. The video is bizarre, but it keeps going. He turns the camera back to the inside of the kitchen and films the side of the fridge, which has an etch-a-sketch stuck to the side of it with a handwritten note saying, I love you. Also on the side of the fridge was a list of chores per day of the week. Monday included laundry, mopping, vacuum, dusting, and taking out the trash. Tuesday included cleaning bathrooms, watering plants, organizing projects, and sweeping the floors. Additionally, he zoomed in on what looks like a menu of the week. All this is to say that it seems like Katie was extremely thoughtful and very organized. When Aaron moves into the living room, there's a pack and play set up in the corner. He spends some time in the living room zooming in on more pictures and the pillows on the couch before heading up the stairs. Once on the second floor, he immediately goes into the bathroom where he shows the toilet and what looks like three air fresheners on it and a lighter. Then zooms in on a stuffed duck on the sink. He then twirls around to the corner of the floor where a baby bathtub is sitting along with a bag of baby bath toys. After leaving the bathroom, he head towards the nursery, which still has a baby gate latched across the bottom of the door frame. There's a dress hanging from the crib and another hanging on the handle of the closet. There are all sorts of baby things like a bouncer, playmat, and a boppy on the floor. 
Based on the video from another room, Katie had clearly planned on dolling up River's room with block letters spelling out her name, something she tragically was never able to do. With Aaron still in the nursery, he zooms in on a cross, an ultrasound photo, a sketch of Katie and River, and a creepy-ass doll baby face that actually made me jump when I watched it. He messes with the mobile above River's crib so it starts moving, and then he removes the top of her hamper to show that there's still dirty clothes in it. The point of this video escapes me. Eventually, Aaron makes his way into his and Katie's bedroom where, I shit you not, there is a pillow under the covers on her side of the bed, making it appear as if someone is under them. In the bathroom, he proves he's consistent in having air fresheners on the back of every toilet, then zooms in on the cabinet on the wall, showcasing that Katie's hair products and Jurgen's lotion were still there. The video was jarring for Katie's family to watch, and it almost felt cruel. There was no explanation, there wasn't even any sound, and the purpose of it is unexplainable. The video was obviously left there for someone to watch, but what was the expected reaction? Time passed and the years took a toll on Katie's family, but Vicky refused to give up. In time, she hired a private investigator named Jessica Sanders, who is an absolute queen among queens, and they started their own investigation together. Spoiler alert, they uncovered information that only solidified Vicky's suspicions all along. One of the things they did first was look at Katie and Aaron's home computer history. The Post and Courier reported that they found listings for 9-11 conspiracy theories and the Jeremiah Project, a website about Bible teachings, the end of times, and details about a new world order. The only times the websites were looked at was when Aaron would have been home. Vicky believes that the note found in Katie's pocket was Katie's way of documenting Aaron's search history. I tried getting a good look at the note, but it almost looked waterlogged. But one thing in particular that did catch my eye was a website listed with the .com and everything. In general, you don't have to write down a website unless someone tells you about it. If you're already on it, you can just go into your history or remember it. This would kind of track with the idea that Katie may have been taking notes on the paper versus the writings being sporadic thoughts or beliefs. P.I. Jessica Sanders spoke to Nancy Grace and said that the paper the note was written on was from a fax her brother had sent her the day before, so it only could have been written in the day prior to her death. She noted that some of the things written on the note matched up with a drop-down bar of previously searched topics on the website. If these topics were only searched when Aaron would have been home, it goes against his claim that he would read about what Katie researched throughout the day when he got home from work. Moving along with the web history, Vicky and Jessica also found that at 10.05 a.m. on January 17th, 2008, Aaron searched for WSC Talk Radio, which is 94.3. Two minutes later, he looked for Two Dead in Berkeley County. This search would have been made an hour and 26 minutes before he called Vicky to tell her what he had heard on the radio. That's going to be a hard one to explain away. Because of that find, Vicky naturally looked into Aaron's claim about hearing that report on said radio station about a person and young child being found on Oakley Road. Vicky told 48 Hours that over the years, she called every radio station and TV station and could not find a single record of anyone saying Oakley Road. 
As a reminder, when Vicky was approached by Detective Alec at the scene, he asked her who had sent her there, which sounds a lot like he was surprised anyone even knew what was going on, let alone the mother and grandmother of the victims. Had the news been broadcasted, I can only assume he'd seem less surprised. When 48 Hours asked Captain Alec about all of this, his response was, I have no idea how he would know. When asked if that was suspicious, Alec admitted, absolutely. Vicky and Jessica continued their investigation and interviewed a dozen people with the goal of proving Katie was not suffering from postpartum psychosis. One of the people they interviewed was Katie's obstetrician, Dr. Case. If you remember, Katie visited her the day before her death, which is when she found out they were having a boy. Dr. Case told 48 Hours that in her professional opinion, she does not believe Katie had any depression or postpartum depression, a pretty damning piece of evidence that should have been acquired during the initial investigation, but was not. But hey, they had a witness statement from a 12-year-old about the days prior to Katie and River's death. As damning as all of that was combined, Vicky still made no headway with the investigators. Fast forward all the way to 2015, seven years after Katie and Rivers' deaths. Vicky met with a team of 48 Hours producers while they were filming a segment on a different case in Charleston. This was her chance and she was gonna take it. Vicky told the producers all about Katie and Rivers' case and they couldn't get it out of their minds. Before 2015 was over, a new county sheriff, Dwayne Lewis, was elected, and oh, how the tides were turning. Two 48 Hours producers reached out to Lewis and asked him about Katie and Rivers' case. Lewis actually wasn't familiar with the case, which makes sense because it had been closed for seven years. Following the call, Lewis asked his cold case detective, Lieutenant Kokinda, to find the file and talk to Vicky. Because 48 Hours called the new sheriff, Seven years after Katie and River's death, their case was officially reopened. Kokinda later told 48 Hours that he wasn't looking forward to meeting Vicky because she had a reputation around town for being quote-unquote crazy. After meeting with Vicky for the first time and hearing her story, Kokinda said to himself, well, she's not crazy. And I debated including that quote because Sheriff Lewis and Lieutenant Kokinda did some great work when it comes to Katie and River's case, but I wanted to show you what Vicky has been up against. Imagine trying to fight for justice for your daughter and grandchildren with a reputation within law enforcement that you're crazy. It had been a constant uphill battle for her, but someone was finally listening. A lot of someone's if 48 Hours was going to have anything to do with it. Kokinda didn't think Vicky was crazy, and neither did Sheriff Lewis. He actually wound up bringing his brother, Detective Daryl Lewis, straight out of retirement to help reinvestigate the case. They reviewed everything from the initial investigation and came to the conclusion that a lot of mistakes had been made. For starters, the original investigators got the wrong train. In a handwritten report on what looks like copy paper, a member of law enforcement during the initial investigation wrote out a timeline for someone called Sarge. It was obviously very professional. It said, January 16th, 8 p.m. Resident on Oakley Road believes he heard an infant crying outside of his residence. 10.28 p.m. Southbound train believed to be the one that hit Katie. 
If that's the case, why was her time of death listed at 9.22 p.m. on her death certificate an hour and six minutes prior to that train passing? To add to that level of bullshit, according to Justice for Katie on Facebook, another train went by at 10.40 p.m. and the cameras on that train did not show Katie's body beside the tracks. However, the handwritten report to Sarge stated that at 11.30 p.m., a different southbound train's camera did catch video of Katie's body laying beside the tracks where she was found. So just right there, we have an issue with her time of death and which southbound train could have hit Katie. But a southbound train did not hit Katie. According to the new sheriff's investigation, a northbound train hit her. Doing my best math with bad information, that would mean that Katie's body had to have appeared by the tracks between 10.40 p.m. and 11.30 p.m. None of the moments in between those 50 minutes include 9.22 p.m., which was noted on her death certificate. It's impossible to try and figure out how you could possibly get that wrong when you'd assume there would be blood and tissue left on the train. According to Vicky and P.I. Jessica's interview with Nancy Grace, this was the difference between Katie being hit by a 50-mile-an-hour CSX freight train and a 70-mile-an-hour Amtrak passenger train. The new detectives had their work cut out for them and had questions about the scene as a whole. Kakinda told 48 Hours that it didn't seem possible for Katie to have parked her car, then walked half a mile in the pitch black on gravel and the rain and ice carrying river. They also wondered why she would walk half a mile down the tracks if her only goal was to take her own life. Questions we have already asked and we're not even investigators. They also had questions about Aaron's interview, which we went over last week, and noticed what we all did, that no one challenged Aaron's version of events, including Katie's supposed postpartum psychosis. Detectives Lewis and Kokinda both told 48 Hours that Aaron was the only person who told investigators that Katie was having a mental breakdown. No one else had seen any evidence of it, not that the original investigators would have known, since they reportedly didn't interview anyone. Kakindo told 48 Hours, you can hide depression from your friends and family, but you don't hide paranoia. The detectives continued their reinvestigation and confirmed what I think is the most damning piece of evidence there is in this case. That there was no radio report about a person and young child getting hit by the train in Berkeley County. The radio broadcast had never happened, it didn't exist, and somehow, Aaron had reportedly searched for exactly that more than an hour before claiming he had heard it. It was proof, undeniable proof, that Aaron not only lied to Vicky, leading her to the exact spot where her daughter and grandchildren were found dead, he had lied to the original investigators as well. Just to refresh all memories here, his exact quote from his interview aired by 48 Hours was, That's when I heard on talk radio, um, 94.3, that there had been a person and a young child hit by the train in Berkeley County. After reviewing all the evidence, Kakinda and Lewis had a theory. Their theory was that there was a fight, verbal or physical, at the major house on the night of January 16th. 
The detectives believe Katie was ending the relationship, which is why her rings were in her pocket and $1,000 in cash was in her truck, a truck which they apparently never found the keys to, by the way. They also believe Aaron could have broken his hand during the fight. What they don't know is how Katie ended up at the tracks. For that, there are multiple theories. That Katie and River left the home after the fight, Katie drove to the tracks and got out. Aaron was chasing after her and caught up and threw her against the train. Or that Katie was killed elsewhere and dumped at the tracks. The damage to the rings in Katie's pocket definitely leads towards massive force being applied to them. However, the lack of blood at the scene does beg the question of whether or not Katie truly died there. Couple that with the lack of water in River's lungs and you have a whole lot of questions that deserve to be answered. I consulted with a former homicide detective who said if there was no water in her lungs when she was found floating in the pond, she was likely dead prior to her being in the water. In September of 2018, Sheriff Lewis held a press conference. He stated, initially, it was believed that Katie was suicidal and had some psychological issues. I can tell you that that is not the case. That suicide had been ruled out for Katie, adding that it didn't seem like River had been hit by the train. It was massive news that felt like a huge step in the right direction, but the wait for justice continued. Six months later, in March of 2019, 48 Hours released their episode on Katie and River's case. They spoke to Detective Alec and asked if he believed there had been a murder-suicide. He said, that's my theory. We worked this case for months. We believed we unturned everything there was to unturn at the time. Alec said he suspected foul play at first, and he looked into Aaron, but he was never able to connect the dots between the deaths and foul play, noting that the evidence, Aaron's statements, and the note in Katie's pocket were proof that Katie had taken her own life. That being said, Detectives Kakinda and Lewis also spoke to 48 Hours, and for the first time ever, they publicly named Aaron as the only suspect in Katie and River's deaths. They said they've tried to speak with Aaron, but that he isn't cooperating. In January of 2021, it was announced that Berkeley County turned the investigation over to SLED, aka South Carolina's Law Enforcement Division. However, Live 5 News reports that SLED was only assisting and had not taken over the case. I would love nothing more than to tell you that in the years since the sheriff said suicide was off the table and they went on 48 hours to name Aaron as a suspect in Katie and River's deaths, that some headway has been made. But that's just not the reality of this case. Despite years and years of fighting, Katie's manner of death has still legally remained suicide on her death certificate. Vicky rightfully worries that not changing the manner of death is hindering the investigation. It's hard to wrap your head around someone being a suspect in a suicide. Countless questions remain in this case. Like if Katie was so afraid that her doctor and mother were going to think she was crazy and take River away, why would she kill her? If Katie was so afraid that someone was after her or going to kill her, why would she kill herself? If Katie was intent on killing herself, why did she bother taking all of the money and River's diaper bag with her? Their family deserves answers. A full investigation is still underway and anyone with information is asked to call the BCSO hotline at 1-843-719-7700. Or if you want to remain anonymous, you can call Crime Stoppers at 
554-1111. There is a $25,000 reward. As always, I'll post these phone numbers in the show notes of this episode. For all photos pertaining to this case, check out Katie's highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley and join me on TikTok tonight at the Heather Ashley at 8:30 p.m. Eastern where you go live with me and we talk about this episode and all other true crime cases on your mind. To get access to ad-free and bonus episodes, subscribe to our Apple Premium or head over to our Patreon at patreon.com/bigmadtruecrime where for just one whole dollar a month your episodes are totally ad-free. If you love the podcast, feel free to leave it a review. And if you have a case that you would like to hear covered, share it with Big Mad True Crime on social media. All cases are covered by listener request. I'll be bringing you a brand new case next week, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out. 